Father, again, we thank you that you have revealed to us through your word that indeed you are the the most high that rules. Lord, remind us that this is really the theme of the entire book of Daniel, that you are ruling on this earth, you are ruling in heaven, your plans will be accomplished. Lord, as we think back on the book that we've studied, the few chapters so far, we realize that you were the one that gave wisdom to Daniel and to his three friends, that you gave him the ability to understand dreams, that you gave him the interpretation for the statue and how the different kingdoms of this world would go by the wayside, that ultimately it would be your kingdom, your son's kingdom, that is going to rule and reign for a thousand years. We saw your hand of protection on the three in the fiery furnace, and we know that it's only you that could have done that. We know that with Nebuchadnezzar, that you humbled him, that you even brought insanity to his life for seven years and sent him out in the field and yet then restored him. And now as we look at Belshazzar and how his life ended sadly, remind us again that you're the most high that rules in the kingdom of men. Lord, even as we think of this kingdom so-called as we have on this earth of America, this United States, we know that it's really in your hands. We don't know what the future holds, but you do. May we be humble servants of yours. May our hope, may our peace, our joy be found in you and not in the political system. Lord, just give us wisdom. Give us the strength. Give us the insight to live for you during these very chaotic days. So help us to be guided through the word today as we look at chapter 5 to be able to learn the life lessons that will give us the strength to do what's right. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles, chapter 5, our intention is to get through the entire chapter today. I will say, though, you may want to get your outline out. That would be helpful. We're going to find out that Belshazzar threw a party. (laughs) At the one moment of life when you shouldn't be partying, he's partying. I want to ask you a question. In God's economy, does payday always come at the end of the week? In other words, we know the biblical principle of sowing and reaping i.e., whatever man sows, that shall he also reap. So we know that payday comes someday. We know that God rewards those who are faithful and judges those who are not. But the question that I want to raise is this, more of timing. Does payday come at the end of the week? Again, in God's economy, payday doesn't always come at the end of the week. In other words, it doesn't always come right away. Sometimes we wish it would, don't you? Don't you wish payday would come when you see unrighteousness being unfolded before your eyes, that God would just tromps on it and destroy it? But that's not how it works. Many times there are long periods of time between the sowing and the reaping, the actions and the consequences. By the way, haven't you even seen that in your own life? Experientially. By the way, I'm thankful that it doesn't come at the end of the week. 
It gives us time to repent. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is forbearing. That's why there's the time frame. Now again, because we know that the timing doesn't always come at the end of the week, let me ask you a second question. For what kind of people does that become especially challenging? Because it doesn't come at the end of the week. Let me give you a few. One, it's a challenge for those who are living faithfully for God. You may be seeking to do what's right, trying to obey the Scripture, seeking to please God. And there's not been any evidence of that blessing. I mean, you're doing what God wants you to do, and it seems like you're still stuck in the same rut. The blessings and the rewards that you expected have not yet come. Let me remind you that we're all planting seeds. And those seeds do take root, and those do give a harvest. And sometimes we're reaping the harvest of years ago. Thankfully, we can plant new seed and and, and, uh, harvest a new crop. Start today if you haven't started. So righteousness. But again, we look and we wonder, is God ignoring us? (laughs) Does he not see? Does he not know? Does he not care? I'm seeking to live for you, Lord. Where's the blessings? By the way, there are. Many times our eyes are blinded to what God is really doing. But the temptation is to become what the Bible would describe as weary and well-doing. You plant seed, you plant seed, and you can get weary. Get weary in well-doing. Don't get weary, by the way, in well-doing. Keep walking with Jesus Christ. There's a bountiful harvest coming, if not on this side of death, for sure on the next. But this also presents a challenge, this idea of uh, that payday does not come at the end of the week for those who are disobedient. Disobedient. Those who are estranged to God, those who are haters of God. Why? Because payday does not always come right after the, the incident, whatever they're thinking, doing as far as ungodliness. The, dis- the disobedient may be tempted to wrongly conclude that maybe God doesn't see, that God doesn't know, that God doesn't care. You know, I think that's where this world's at. It does its unrighteousness, it shakes its hand at God, it curses God, it blasphemes God. I'm still living, they would say. And it really goes back, this is a good verse for you to maybe to write down, Ecclesiastes 8.11. It says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Because they're not crushed when they do their evilness. Their ungodliness, they think, well, must be God doesn't see, he doesn't know, he doesn't care. By the way, this can also be a combination of of both of those in our own lives. We see areas of faithfulness, we see areas of disobedience, and because we don't see the consequence of either blessing or chastisement, we may start to wonder, does really God care about this whole thing in the first place? So you've got to ask yourself, where do you fit? I trust that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, one who has put their faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. But let me say this. There is a judgment day coming, right? For the ungodly, it's called the great white throne found in Revelation 20. When their works are laid out and because their works are ungodly, they are sent to the lake of fire. But for the Christian, those who are under the blood, who have been forgiven... And part of his family, there's also called what we call the Bema seat, found in Corinthians. 
And there our works will also be laid out, but it's not for judgment of damnation. It's to see how you were faithful before the Lord and, and reward following. But there is a judgment day coming, both for the unsaved and for the saved. We can't forget God's timetable. He is patient. He is forbearing. We think that just because we, we didn't receive the consequences or the conviction, not the conviction, the chastisement, that somehow he didn't see our sin, even as believers. No, no. His timetable is that he is forbearing and merciful and he wants you to repent and start planting new seeds. But today, for our purposes, we're going to be looking at a king who misunderstood God's table, uh, timetable. And he was arrogant, he was proud, he was, he was a blasphemer. Very, very ungodly. And his name was Belshazzar. So again, if you're not there, Daniel 5 verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast. So we'll look at the chronology of the king. Who is this Belshazzar? Well, his name, you can kind of see it, Bel. Bel was one of their god. And it literally means this, Bel, protect the king. By the way, this is very similar to Daniel's name. Remember when Daniel was brought from uh, uh, Israel, Jerusalem, and brought into uh, Babylon? He was renamed Belt-Shazar. So B-E-L-T-E-Shazar. This is Bel, B-E-L-Shazar. But very similar even in the context of what it meant. Daniel's name and Belshazzar's name both had the idea of Bel, the idol, protect the king. Now, between the time of Daniel chapter 1 and here Daniel chapter 5, there's been almost 70 years that have transpired. We have to realize this. Daniel was taken into captivity around maybe 14 to 18 years old. He is now an older man. He is now between high 80s and low 90s at this point. So Daniel's still amongst us. You're going to see him in a moment. By the way, between chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's been about a quarter century that has happened. So think about quarter century from this point, back in the 1990s, let's say, okay? So like Daniel chapter 4 happened in 1990, and now this chapter is happening in 2013. Okay, about 25 years has transpired from the time of Nebuchadnezzar and his humbling and him eating the grass and acting like an insane man for seven years, being reinstituted. And now, chapter 5, we, saw, we find Belshazzar and a great feast, and this has been a quarter century. By the way, if you just go really quickly to chapter um, 7 and chapter 8, Look at chapter 7, verse 1, the first, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1, the first year of Belshazzar. Uh, chapter 8, in the third year of the king of Belshazzar. Now, what does that mean? That means the book is out of sequence. Okay? You, you, that's very important to understand in Daniel. Actually, those chapters, 7 and 8, were written 14 years before chapter 5. And you say, well, okay, why not chronological? Well, because this is really what was happening. Chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel, he's, he's been giving us a lot of narratives about different people. You know, how did Daniel get uh, to Babylon, you know, chapter 1, and then the image which gave the entire sequence of human history as far as the kingdoms. Chapter 3 were the three in the fiery furnace. Chapter 4 was, was Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5 is now Belteshazzar. And then we come chapter 8 next week as far as the lion's done, okay? Now, why is he doing all this? Because he's establishing something. 
God is establishing something, that he is the most high God that reigns in the heavens and the earth, okay? Chapters 1 through 6 is establishing who is God, and how does he interrelate to uh, uh, his people and ungodly kings, and even how he saved an ungodly king, Nebuchadnezzar. I believe at the end he was a true uh, Old Testament saint. So again, chapters 1 through 6 is really about people and how God related to people. Chapter 7 through 12 is going to be uh, more prophecy, more specific prophecy being played out. That's just a side note. Um, but anyways, 23 years have passed between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. Now I say that because that's not a very long time. I, I also say this to, to say that Belshazzar most likely was living... He might have been a young kid at the time when he saw Nebuchadnezzar, that great king, out in the field eating hay. (laughs) In other words, the lesson should have stuck. You'll find out later it didn't. Now, the throne of Babylon became a very precarious seat after the death of Nebuchadnezzar in 562. If you could... I just want to... I didn't put this in your outline, but um, this is really how it played out. This is Nebuchadnezzar, 605 right here is when uh, he first came into Jerusalem and besieged it. Three times he besieged Jerusalem, but that's the beginning. He ends up dying in 562. Now, from there, according to a historian, Nebuchadnezzar died about 43 years later. Now, seven years of that was insanity. That should have been a big... I mean, if our president was insane for seven years and then came back, wouldn't that make an impression on you? Evil Murdoch. Murdoch. See, they had different names. You can find him in 2 Kings, by the way, 25. Uh, He became... uh, uh, His rule was arbitrary and licentious and only lasted for two years. So this guy only lasted for about two years. Uh, He was assassinated by his brother-in-law, this guy... So this guy was assassinated by his brother-in-law. Now, again, that's pretty tumultuous, right? I mean, that was, you know, you should start learning lessons here. In about 560 B.C., and he occupied the throne for about four years. Actually, this guy was pretty good. He actually tried to get uh, Jeremiah released from prison uh, in Jeremiah 39. At his death, his son takes over the throne, and some say two months to nine months. So less than a year, he's on the throne. He actually gets beaten to death. He's probably less than a, a teenager, I mean, right around teenage years. But he gets beaten to death by a group of conspirators, and they name, the conspirators named this guy, Nabonius, M-N-A-D-O-I-N-I-D-U-S. This guy as king, and he remains king for about 17 years. Some say it, it, that he married the daughter or the actual wife of the deceased Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know all the particulars, but there was a connection. That's the point. But again, Nebuchadnezzar had son, had a, a son-in-law. Uh, here's uh, probably his daughter married this guy. And the point is, is that the throne has been passed along all within a very, very short time. But then this guy here, Nidonius uh, end up, or however you spell his name, um, or say his name, uh, was about 17 years. Okay, 17 years. Now, since Nidonius was not in the bloodline, I wish his name was Sam or something, um, (laughs) was not in the bloodline to Nebuchadnezzar, he made his residence. Now, this guy didn't live in Babylon because he wasn't a blood relative of this, of Nebuchadnezzar, the one that we've been studying. He made his residence in Tima, 
which was off in the, in the Arabia Desert for about 14 years. He was seeking to build a commercial empire. So a very powerful king, a pretty peaceful king. But because nobody was in Babylon, he actually appointed his son, Belshazzar, as the co-regent of the Babylonian Empire, also the Babylonian city. Okay, So now, by this point, this guy is ruling in Tima, this guy is ruling in Babylon. They're like co-regent, they're co-kings. Uh, again, probably because this is the connection. Nebuchadnezzar had a daughter, he marries the daughter, and Belshazzar is from him, so there's a bloodline. Okay, that, You can kind of see why he would do that. So most likely that's the... But Belshazzar is reckless. Very, very reckless. Now, you, you can shut that up. Thank you. The conquest by the Medo-Persians. When Cyrus, the king of the Medes and Persians, began attacking the Babylonian Empire, he and his army met Nabonius, the father, okay, the one that married the daughter, and his forces defeated the king. Nabonius felt, uh, fled to Borsipia, a city near Babylon. You're saying, don't give me all these names, I'm not going to remember it. But the point is, is this. He flees... The king of Medes and Persians, remember the uh, idol, the image that was given to Daniel, uh, given to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel interpreted, and it said, you're, you're the head of gold, but then there's going to be the silver, which is the, uh, the, the shoulders and down to here. See, he, we're working down the image. And the, that second kingdom is going to be the Medes and Persians. Well, who's the head of the Medes and Persians? Cyrus. Cyrus decides he's going to destroy Babylon. He does, and to the most part, he's, he's, he's actually up to this point in the story, he has destroyed, pretty much conquered the entire area that Babylon is around. The only place he hasn't yet conquered is the actual city of Babylon. And so he captures the first king and sends him off into, actually doesn't kill him, just sends him off into exile, had to live in a city near Persia, but then as Daniel 5 begins, again, this, that the first king was defeated, and now they're besieging the walls of Babylon. That's what historians tell us. I mean, the enemy is right at the gate as Daniel chapter 5 starts. They're, but this de facto king, Belshazzar, is shut up within Babylon, and this is what it is. He's overconfident. He says, look at, my, look at the walls we have. They're 300 feet high. They're 80 feet thick. The city itself is about 15 miles square. Sure, there's Persians all around, but they estimated that they had food supplies for 20 years. We're going to outlast them. There's nobody going to attack us and destroy us. Oh, they're trying to attack us, but we're fortified. We are safe. And Belshazzar the king made a feast. He has a party, and you say, how could he have a party when the entire Persian army is outside his door? I think there's a couple reasons he's doing this. First of all, he did think of himself as earthly invincible. He figured he was invincible. I mean, let's face it, he had had this long run of 50-plus years, actually 70-plus years, where he saw the great uh, Babylon, the whole nation, just be the powerhouse of, that, of, the, of the known world at that time. But I also think this, that the party itself was to show that he was the one still in control. This is how uh, blind this guy is. He still thought he was the powerhouse, even though the Persians were knocking on the door. 
And then you notice that he, he's actually going to be making a toast to his gods. And I think part of the party was that. He was going to be making a toast and, and beseeching his gods for protection and for victory. He, I guess he thought that it was actually going to come. But he was totally oblivious to how vulnerable they were. Why? Because he was proud, he was arrogant, he was foolish. So that's the context of verse 1. The party's happening, but the Persians are outside the gate. Now, let me give you one other part. If you go to Scripture, since you're in Daniel, just go back a little bit into uh, Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah the prophet, about, again, it's, it's about a quarter to a half century earlier, said this. So between 25 and 50 years earlier, this is what Jeremiah the prophet wrote. And he was very specific <coughs> that Babylon was coming down. Babylon was going to be destroyed. Chapter 50, verse 1, says this, The word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Verse 2, Declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim, do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken. Bel, which is the idol, the main idol, Bel is shamed. Muradoc is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated. Her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north, a nation comes against her, which shall make her land desolate. And no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. And the Lord's not going to stay there. It's going to be a desolate land. Jeremiah says, listen, there's a day coming. Babylon's going to be totally destroyed. Not just partially, totally. Belshazzar should have known this. You go to chapter 51, verse uh, 11. He actually identifies who. Second part says, The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, for his plan is against Babylon to destroy it. Who's his plans? That's God's plans. Because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Remember that little phrase, the vengeance for his temple. It's because of what you did to my temple. Remember Nebuchadnezzar when he went into the temple and besieged it in chapter 1, verse 1 or 2. It says that he took the implements. Part of that were the silver and gold goblets. Seventy years later. Ah, God forgot. He didn't see. He didn't care. No, no. I'm going to destroy Babylon because of what you did to my temple. God remembers. Payday someday. Ah, Look at verse 28. Prepare against her the nations which the kings of the Medes... By the way, at the time of the writing, the Medes were the more powerful of the Persian. And then it actually switched. The Medes and the Persian. Persian became more powerful. But again, the Medes and the Persians. It's governors and all its rulers. They're going to be the... Look at verse 29, second part. For every purpose of the Lord shall be uh, performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. So we find that the Lord says, hey, listen, I'm going to bring Babylon down. It's from the king of the north. He's going to be the Mede. We find out the Mede and the Persian. Look at verse 32. And the passages are blocked. The reeds, they have burned with fire. He's talking about the Euphrates. And what, the, re, the, the way that uh, Cyrus came into the city was he diverted the Euphrates that literally went right through the city so that the water dropped and they were able to go under the portals going into the city. The enemy got into the city where the river, bank should have, or the river should have been flowing. But I find that it's interesting how he says the passages are blocked and the reeds they have burned with fire. Why? Because they're dry. Why? Because there's no water there. 
Look at verse 36. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. I mean, isn't that just so, whoa, he's telling them how it's even going to happen. Verse 57. Now, this is an interesting. And I will make drunk her princes and the wise men, her governors, her deputies, and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep. They're going to fall asleep drunk. The enemy's going to come in and kill them. They're never going to wake up again. It's going to be a perpetual sleep. And not awake, who's whose name is the Lord of hosts. Oh, excuse me, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Again, I am the king of kings, God is saying. Verse 58, the broad walls of Babylon, 80 plus feet thick, what you're depending on will be utterly broken, and her high gates shall be burned with fire. Interesting point. Um, When Babylon was finally destroyed, it was never even actually inhabited at all until like 200 A.D., I mean, they were, excuse me, they were trying to inhabit it, but they never got it off the ground, as it were, and it just remained a desolation. Uh, Alexander the Great tried to reestablish Babylon, and he died, I think, at age 33, never having done it. See, God said it's going to be an utter desolation. By the way, of recent, Saddam Hussein tried to reestablish and got it up and going, and then a half a million of the, of the world's people came together and destroyed it again. In other words, when he says Babylon is no longer, you can try to create Babylon, but it will be destroyed. In Revelation, we find that Babylon, the city, is once again one of the economic centers of the, of the world, and that again will be destroyed. He says it's going to be a desolation. People are going to try to reestablish Babylon. I'll keep destroying it because it will no longer be. So, Jeremiah, that was a sideline, by the way. Jeremiah is, has made very clear within a quarter, half century earlier that Babylon's coming down. Babylon is going to be destroyed. And yet Belshazzar has a party. He has a great feast. And look at what he does, verse 2. This is Belshazzar's blasphemy, if you're taking notes. Well, he tasted the wine... Uh, the implication is this, that whatever is going to be said of Belshazzar would not have been done by him if he wasn't tasting the wine. See, he was getting drunk, and you do stupid things, foolish things when you're drunk. Is that true? <laughs> no, I didn't ask you if you did stupid things. I said, is that true? Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, and you say, Father, well, again, in the lineage... Actually, there was no word for grandfather, so they would literally, if it was, I mean, even if it was my great-grandfather, they would say father. The idea is in lineage, too. Most likely, this is his grandfather. So let's just think of it this way. So, which his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines, notice all the his. In other words, he's over these people, might drink from them. So he says, listen, go get the gold and silver goblets. Bring them here. They haven't been brought out to since the time that Nebuchadnezzar captured them. They put them in storage. They haven't been used, probably because Nebuchadnezzar had respect, at least for the the God of Israel. But now in his drunken stupor, he said, yeah, bring them out as well. I will show you that I can drink from those and, and uh, make a toast to my idols, which were probably in the room all over, you know, lined up, not just Bell, but all of them. 
and to show that my gods are more, more powerful than not only the Jewish God, but also more powerful and will protect me against the, the army that is knocking on the gate. Then they brought the gold goblets or vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Do you see the, uh, you know, just everybody. <laughs> it wasn't even a special event. It wasn't like just the one king had one goblet, and let me see. He just passed them around. The holy implements of the temple were being passed on to pagans. And the king and his lords and his wife again drank from them. They drank wine and notice what they did. They praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So what Nebuchadnezzar had showed respect to, Belshazzar showed contempt to. And he was, I think, just... Um, again, it was blasphemy against the, the holy God of Scripture. So he was not only not treating the goblets with holiness, he was again committing idolatry by toasting his idols. And it's like uh, Jeremiah, which we just read, Jeremiah 51.11. Again, let me repeat it. Because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Why were they destroyed? Because they treated with contempt the implements of the temple. I, I liked what one, how got one guy... Uh, uh, commented on this. He said, the subtle form of idolatry, acknowledging Jehovah as God, but making him equal or even subservient to other gods, is more prevalent than we may think. As I said a few weeks ago, idolatry is a, a, a alive and well in America, right? A missionary, he tells this story, he says, a missionary in Taiwan once, once told me that it is very easy to get a profession of faith in Jesus among the Taiwanese people. The problem is that they put Jesus on their shelf with many other idols. I've heard that said of uh, Africans as well. By the way, I've heard that, I know that's true of Americans as well. It might not be an idol of silver or gold, but it, we put Jesus sometimes on the same shelf. He says this, the rub comes when they are encouraged to be baptized. The genuinely born-again Taiwanese surface at this point because to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is to renounce all idols. When they are baptized, they are often forsaken by the family, unable to get jobs, and rejected by their friends. It's when they get baptized and say, Jesus is the only Savior. He is sufficient. Again, in America, isn't it true that we have a lot of different gods? Oh, we worship God, and by the way, not we, you, but I'm saying we, America. Yes, on Sunday we will tip our hat to God, as it were, and yet we have the God of sports and the God of family and the God of money and the God of pleasure, and yet God says, I am the only true God. We have to be careful. We have to be careful that as we receive Jesus Christ, as we are seeking to walk with him, he is the only God. <laughs> he is the only one that uh, uh, deserves our allegiance, that we are fully committed to him and him alone. But again, Belshazzar, he would have said, no, he's one of many. In fact, he's even probably saying, look at all my gods. I mean, the true God is subservient to my, my idols. So that's the blasphemy. This is huge. The reason that the Babylon was destroyed this night was because of how they treated the implements of the temple, the goblets. And look at God's uh, hand of judgment, verse 5. 
And at this point, we're going to start reading a lot from the text. I want you to be in the, in the Bible there. In the same hour, underline that, in the same hour, he's, you know, slopping down the wine. He's, you know, I'm that God, you know, and let's toast him. Making the true God subservient. That same hour, the fingers of a man's hand. By the way, just the fingers. It almost sounds like this. Just all you saw was the fingers, not the, even the whole hand. Appeared and wrote outside, the, uh, opposite the lampstand of the plaster on the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So it was the fingers. Look at his reaction. The king's countenance changed. I, he was terrified. He turned as white as a sheet. <laughs> By the way, when we hear God's word, that's how it should happen. We should honor and respect. Thankfully, because we are in his body, be in his family, we don't have to be terrified, but we need to fear the Lord. And his thoughts troubled him. That's a very intensive word. His thoughts really, really troubled him. So that it, the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked. Like to, wouldn't you have liked to have seen that? <laughs> this all of a sudden so his knees knocked against each other by the way at this point he was sober I mean now he's sobering up he didn't need coffee he didn't need he's now getting very sober very quickly and the king cried aloud to bring into the astrologers the Chaldeans the soothsayers the king spoke saying verse 7 to the wise men of Babylon whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation now notice how foolish this guy is judgment is coming and now he's offering the the, the clothed with purple, that's royalty, and a chain of gold, that's riches around his neck, and he shall, have a, he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. That's power and authority. He's, he's offering all this stuff that he's, oh, he can give away the purple and the gold, but he can't give away the authority. It's going to be taken from him that night. By the way, he said the third ruler. Did you notice that? Third ruler. Why? Because his father is co-ruler uh, co with him, and he could only offer. That's the highest position. It was his father, him, and now he's saying, I'll give you the, the third ruler in the kingdom. His knees are knocking because he knows judgment's coming. He doesn't know it all, but he knows that there's a big problem here. Verse 8, now all the king's wise men came, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Probably, by the way, it's this. When it was done in Aramaic, it probably didn't have any vowels. In fact, some people might say it might even have been written in like a cross form or something like that, like a puzzle. But maybe it was as simple as this. It didn't have vowels, and it was just a run-on sentence. So it wasn't like it said, many, many. You know, it, it just, uh, no, we don't understand what it means. The king, verse 9, Belshazzar was greatly troubled. I mean, his own men. The men that represented his gods were powerless and ignorant. That's the point. And his countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. Because every time there's a major problem, the gods of this world can't, do not have the power to accomplish it, right? Do not have the power to, to give the grace that's needed to accomplish. But the queen mother comes in, verse 10 through 12. Now, you might say, well, who's this? Well, this might be Nebuchadnezzar's previous wife but it's probably his daughter again that's where that's where I think it's going queen spoke saying oh king live forever by the way that's how you always approached a king you didn't say you know hey by the way you're going to die tonight by the way she was foolish because she thought this was really true because notice the second part she says do not let your thoughts trouble you Ah, uh, 
No, she should be, if she was wise, she would have said, let your tr- thoughts trouble you. There's judgment coming. She didn't understand. Nor let your countenance change. There is a man. Now, thankfully, she was wise enough to know there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your, of your father, again, grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, again, grandfather, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, explaining enigmas, were found, what does your next word say? Were found what? In David. Whom, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let David or Daniel be uh, called and he will give the interpretation. So she comes and, you know, thankfully, hey, there is one guy. Which tells you this, you know, apparently Belshazzar has not been using this guy. <laughs> Yeah, he was, he was very high in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, but that was a quarter century earlier. Now all of a sudden, you know, he's doing it on his own with his gods. And now Daniel comes in. A man to be admired. A man to be admired. He's, again, 80 plus years old. He might even be walking in with a, you know, with a cane. You know, probably when he's called, he's, uh, I don't know what his attitude was. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, who my grandfather, my father, the king, brought from Judah? Now now notice how he responds. I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. I've, I've just heard this. I haven't experienced it. I haven't seen it firsthand because I haven't been paying attention to what the true God is doing. And I think he almost seems condescending. I've heard it. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that this is, that's how ungodly men act. They act cynical and condescending toward the true man of God. What does Daniel do, verses 18 to 21? He gives them a history lesson. By the way, sometimes parents, give your kids a history lesson. Tell them what God has done in your life. Tell them what God has done in your grandparents' life. So he reviews historically. O king, the most high, the most high God, i.e. the sovereign ruler of this universe, both in heaven and on earth, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. Okay, how was Nebuchadnezzar so great? Because the king of the universe gave him something. And because of the majesty, verse 19, that that he gave him, now notice he keeps saying, see, Daniel keeps wanting to point back, by the way, I shouldn't have said that earlier, I'm sure Daniel was chomping at the bit when called by the king, I'm going to tell him who the true God is, that's actually, I mean, that I guess would be my attitude, wouldn't that be yours, ungodly king wants to see you, to interpret a dream, oh, my opportunity to tell him who the truth is, what the truth is, but look at, And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wished, Nebuchadnezzar, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. If he wanted to set some up, he did it. If he wished to put him down, he did. He was so powerful, but it wasn't his power. It's not America's power. It's what God has granted us. It's what God granted him.
But when his heart was lifted up, verse 20, and his spirit was hardened in pride, in other words, he didn't receive it humbly. By the way, this, this is an individual application, isn't it? What do you have? What do you have? Aren't we all rich? Most of us are very wealthy compared to uh, the world's standards. Sometimes we get very, very arrogant and proud, and we start comparing and thinking it was us that did it. I mean, we were pretty good, right? We made the deals. We got the education. We worked the hours. Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? That's what God would want to tell each one of us. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you think it's yours, I just have to withhold breath from you for four minutes, and it's gone. <laughs> so this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 20, he hardened in pride. In, but what, what happened? He was disposed, deposed, excuse me, deposed from his kingly throne. He was deposed. And they took his glory from him. They might even refer to the angels. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was heart made like the beasts, i.e. insanity. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with the grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till. Okay, there's a climax coming here. Till. He knew that the Most High God rules. See, that was the whole point. That's the whole point of chapter 4. That's the whole point of verses, chapters 1 through 6. Who rules? Actually, that's the whole point of the book of Daniel. Who rules? Is it men or God? Nebuchadnezzar finally figured that out, that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints, it being God, over it whomever he chooses. So if you have something, if our nation has something, if the world is enjoying some type of benefit, it's from God. Isn't that great? By the way, do we have to be reminded of these truths? It's not us. It's not about us. That's why really, no matter where you find yourself in the Christian life, you, should, you can be content, especially as, a, as you, let's just take the area of service or what God has given to you as far as finances, what God has given to you as far as intellect, who God has given to you as far as relationships, whatever God has given to you, what? What do you have that you did not receive? You got it from God, that the most high God rules. So that's the renewing, reviewing the past. He gets historical on Belshazzar. And let me remind you, and I think we should all be reminded. If you think about it, Israelites were constantly reminded. Constantly told you it's easy to forget. And then they went back to the Passover and how God delivered them from Egypt and all the different history lessons. Old Testament is full of review. We've got to be reviewing with our kids, reviewing in our own life. But look at, this is one of the saddest verses of all of Scripture. He reads the charges, but you... You, of all people, probably even were there living when the guy was out, you know, grass, you know, long nails, long hair. <laughs> but you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You knew all this. By the way, when Nebuchadnezzar went from this stance back to the throne, he was talking. I bet you he was talking. Hey, listen. I learned something. God is the one that's most high. You knew all this. You were, maybe even this, you were taught these lessons from Nebuchadnezzar's own mouth. Again, application, are we teaching our kids the lessons that we have learned? And children and teens and young adults, whoever you are, are you learning? <laughs> are you learning? Or are you saying this? I can do it on my own. Yeah, that's the God of my father and my mother. Oh, I'm looking good right now because I'm under their thumb. 
and I'll do their little thing. But once I get to college, man, party time! Or whatever you say, I don't know. See, you should have known this. But you didn't humble yourself. You weren't a learner. You weren't teachable. Verse 23, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You, notice you yourself, you yourself, against the Lord. You're against the Lord. They brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines, they have drunk wine from them. They have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which you which do not see. They don't hear. They don't know. By the way, God hears, sees, and knows. Kind of goes back to my opening statement. God sees, knows, and hears. He, he hears all this. I mean, he's active, but these guys don't. These guys, these idols. And the God who holds your breath in his hand, who owns all, the, uh, who owns all your ways, you have not glorified. That's why Romans chapter 2 says this. Romans chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but and we're trying to close this down. <laughs> But I never say that because then you'll say, yeah, right. That means a half hour to go. No, it doesn't. But this is what Romans 2, 4 to 5, and you want to write this down. Do not despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and long-suffering. Don't despise that. Just because you weren't pounced on when you sinned, don't despise the goodness of God. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent, impenitent, impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. In other words, we should be very thankful for God's patience. So, verse 24, Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, that's God, and his writing was written. The Lord of heaven sent. Now again, this is Daniel telling Belshazzar what happened. Because you were arrogant, you were proud, you didn't accept the fact that all came from the Lord, the hand came, the fingers came. And like a jury foreman, he reads out the verdict. This is the inscription. See, up to this point, he didn't know the inscription. It was, like I said, probably didn't have vowels. It may have been mixed up. But he said this, and I'm going to try to mena mena tekel oops oop harsen. And he said, but this is what it means. See, okay. And by the way, I think by this time things are starting to happen with Belshazzar, and he starts. Okay, I'm starting to get this. This is the interpretation. Mena mena, double. Why? Because really making a point at this means to number, to reckon. I.e., God has numbered your kingdom and has finished it. (laughs) And he puts toot because he means emphasis. It's done. It's done. Can you imagine the guy probably holding the, the, the wine in the goblet and like dropping it? Tekel. You have been weighed, the word means weighed, in the balances and have found wanting. In other words, you're not doing what God wants you to do. Upharsin. He actually uses the word pers, which means to divide. By the way, judgment means to divide. That's literally what the word, the root part of the judgment means, to divide. You've been judged and been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So what's the, what's the, um, the entire interpretation? You've been numbered, you've been weighed, and you've been divided. You've been numbered and it's finished. You've been weighed and you've been found wanting. You haven't done what God wanted you to do. And you've been divided. It's been taken from you. By the way, for each person that's an unbeliever, that will someday be the judgment, right? God himself will, has numbered our, their days <laughs> and finished it. God himself weighs in the balance what they have done and found them wanting and they are judged. 
Thankfully for those who are in Jesus Christ, we have, we have hope, we have righteousness because of his righteousness imputed to us. But that actually, I could do a whole message just on that interpretation, how it really, uh, really applies to an unbeliever. Unbelievers are seen by God, they are numbered, they are weighed, and then they are judged. May it be that you are found in Christ so that the wrath of God is not poured out on you. Why? Because the wrath of God has already been poured out on Jesus Christ. Let me give you four quick lessons. Or let me just say this, four lessons. First of all, sin is not static. The one who sins never remains on a plateau. See, the path of sin always leads downhill. So that's what Romans 1 talks about. Just write that down. The downward spiral of sin is found in Romans 1 that as they reject God, it says God gave them over to uncleanness. Then even worse, go over to vile passions. That's homosexuality. And then over to a debased mind, which is even worse than that means that their mind has become totally useless. By the way, if you want to summarize our society, that's it right there. As a whole, boy, thankfully there's pockets of Christianity and even conservatism, but Christianity is the important thing. But the point is, is there's a downward spiral to sin because sin is not static. Think about this. Nebuchadnezzar was judged, sent out to become an insane, like beastie, like a beast animal for seven years, brought back as a king. His grandson should have learned the lesson What did his grandson do? Not only was he proud and arrogant like his grandfather, but he actually blasphemed the holy holy God by drinking from the goblets from the temple. So again, at the point where he should be fasting and praying, he's throwing a party. I liked how one one, one person, or excuse me, in verse 22, look at this. You've not humbled your heart, although you knew all this to be true. You knew all this. You, not to be true, but you knew all this. You knew all the things that happened to your grandfather you should have learned. I guess, that's, I guess that's what's really hit me out of the whole lesson today. Are we learning? Are you learning from your grandparents, even if you're 65 years old? Are you learning the lessons? Or we just keep repeating the same and God keeps chasing in us? And kids, are you learning from your parents? Or are you just sitting, yeah, I wish you'd get done. I, you know, we're going to go to McDonald's afterwards. Because God is watching and, and we are going to be weighed... <laughs> and found wanting if we indeed are not following him. So, sin is not static. Number two, sin makes us blind to danger. I mean, he's handing out gold and purple robes and offering the third seat in the kingdom. He's having a party when the enemy is knocking at the door. I mean, how stupid. How stupid. The very night Darius was outside the walls of Babylon, the very night, at this very moment, the Euphrates is being diverted, the water is now dropping, the Persians and Medes are ready to, to enter the walls, the portals, and he's throwing a party and, and offering because God made him drunk. That's what it says in Jeremiah. But, you know, there's an application here. Sure, the culture can plunge into the abyss, of ungodliness. But you know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, as Christians, can we act so foolish as this ungodly king? Can we desecrate? Can we defile? Can we pollute the Lord's temple with our bodies by following after lust and ungodliness? Yes, right? Turn on the TV, watch it on the internet, whatever. Fill line, fill mine, fill mine, fill your mind. 
and somehow you know, God's not, God doesn't hear, God doesn't see, God doesn't care. No, no, no. <laughs> he took it from the temple. We are the temple. Let's be careful that we live in holiness. Number three, God is not static. God's judgment may seem slow, but it is thorough. It is thorough. That very night, verse 30 says, Belshazzar, the king of Chaldeans, was slain. That very night, October 11th, 539 B.C. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. That very night, as he's toasting, as he's hearing Daniel, as he's seeing the writing, as he's getting the interpretation, at that very time, the soldiers were, were entering the Babylon. That impregnable city. No, no, it was entering. That's why in Matthew chapter 24, it says this. And this is the Olivet Discord, but he, Jesus says, Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Before that, he was talking about the judgment that is going to happen to both the ungodly and the godly. Be ready. Be ready. Because God is not static. His wrath is actually, as one man said, it's like... It's, it's accumulating like the wall, like water behind the dam. And it's going to come. Thankfully, we can be in, found in Christ. And the wrath of God that's going to be poured upon the world, we find in Revelation, was already poured out on Christ for those who would receive Christ. See, the wrath of God has been paid for for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then finally... Never, never underestimate the power of one solitary godly life. Just one lonely old guy that hadn't been seen for a number of years. Daniel, 80 plus, probably came in with a cane. By the way, did you notice Daniel wasn't really respectful to the king? He was caustic. You should have known. See, I don't, don't read this as like he was real polite. He probably got in his face. You should have known this. Because when, you, when you're destroyed, you're bringing down a lot of other people with you as well. Christians don't always have to be nice. Against the backdrop of judgment stood one reassuring constant light, one man who was courageous, one man who was uncompromising in character. How about you? How about you? Are you that man? Are you that woman? Are you that teen? Are you that college kid? You have God's truth. You know it. And by the way, not everyone's asking you at the moment. They don't even care. Everything's going fine. I got food on my table. I got you know, money in the bank. Car's running. Good to go. But there's going to come a time where you're going to be called on, just like Daniel. question is, your character uncompromising. Are you courageous? Are you bold? Or will you shrink? I'm going to end with this one quote by Joseph Parker. He was a guy who lived back in the 1800s. He was a pastor. He really wrote this to pastors, but I inserted the word Christian for every time he used the word pastor because I think we're all involved in getting the good news out, aren't we? Aren't we all witnesses for Jesus? And he wrote this. Christian, Christians of the word, you'll be wanted someday by Belshazzar. You're going to be wanted someday. You are not at the beginning of the feast. You will be there before the banquet hour is closed. The king will not ask you to drink wine, but he will ask you to tell the secrets of his pain and heal the malady of his heart. Just wait your time, Christian. You are nobody now. Who cares about Christians and teachers and seers and men of insight while the wine goes around and the feast is unfolding its tempting luxuries? But the Christian will have his opportunity. 
They will send for him when all the other friends have failed. May he then come fearlessly, independently, boldly, asking only to be a channel through which divine communication can be addressed. Then may he speak to the listening trouble of the world. Are you going to be that man, that woman, that teen? Oh, they're not listening to you right now. Everything's going okay. But wait till they get in their crises. Wait till they end up in the hospital. Wait till the doctor says it's cancer. Wait till they find out that he's leaving you. You've lost your job. You're losing your home. Then if you are that uncompromising man of character, a woman of character, if you are willing to then be bold, then you've just won a hearing, right? See, we walk this earth with our Lord, but people are watching. Isn't that true? Daniel had 70 years of ministry because he was godly. But you know what? If he had capitulated in chapter 1, you never hear of Daniel again. But he remained uncompromising. He remained bold for Jesus Christ. And when the moment was ripe and his, his voice was needed, he was there. And that's how we have to look at life ourselves, right? See, we have to be ready with the answer for those who are asking the questions. <laughs> We've got to be ready with the answer. Why? Not only because we have the answer, but our life backs up the answer. See, our life is consistent with what the Word of God says. So be that consistent Christian so we can be like Daniel. Let's stand as we uh, worship him. Father, again, we thank you that no matter what our hurts, no matter what our temptations or trials, that you are indeed the God most high and that rule in the kingdom of, of men. And Lord, we can cast our burdens, we can cast our cares on you because you care for us. Lord, I pray that we would have that consistent life of Daniel. We would have the consistency so that we might have opportunity to be an influence around us, to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors. Father, remind us often that you are indeed most high, that you do indeed rule, and that no matter what's going on in this world, whether it's around this world or in America, that overall, you're the one superseding and interceding through every one of those actions, every one of those decisions, because you're drawing history to a conclusion, and the conclusion is your conclusion, where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and rule and reign for a thousand years. Lord, help us to have faith in all that your word says, so that we live with peace, we live with joy, knowing that, again, you're in control. We don't have to worry about it. Lord, forgive me for the times of my anxiety and fear and worries. Each one of us, Lord, help us to put our faith and our hope and our trust in you. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.